from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... I was surprised by the reaction to the painting. How did I get through the 60s without knowing about right-wing folk singers? Somebody said the Black Panthers had a band. Instead of getting fascism, we got FDR. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. This week's show is about political art of all kinds. I chose to use an undisclosed studio to focus on the task of embedding in a single painting all the mindless, radical, and dangerous atrocities of the Obama administration. That declaration comes from a 2012 video by a painter named John McNaughton describing a work of his called Obamination. McNaughton made his name as a protest artist during the last administration. His depictions of President Obama stepping on the Constitution, burning the Constitution, smiling as he looks out over a wrecked America, sold well and were widely shared online. But before any of that happened, John McNaughton was earning a living selling landscapes and religious scenes until 2008. You know, I got the idea for a painting called One Nation Under God uh, during the 2008 election and you know, I spent about six months gelling on it, thinking about it, and I finally said, I've got to paint this. I don't care if anybody even uh, is, has any interest in it, but I'm going to do it. And then it went on and went viral online uh, amongst some people that uh, were against the painting. And then from there, you know, at first I thought, oh, great, you know, this isn't what I want. I'm not a, <laughs> yeah. an activist. Yeah. Uh, and then just and then the tides turned, and then the support became overwhelming. And so I learned what it felt like to be an activist artist. Right. For, for I understand, and for listeners who may not know the painting, it is it's in Washington, and and Jesus uh, is at the center, I guess, holding a copy of the Constitution, and around him are past presidents, back to the eighteenth nineteenth century, and then just a group of modern Americans. But but it's it's basically it's it's one nation under God with Jesus, sort of I don't know, sanctifying the Constitution. Well, yeah, and it was a very personal painting when I did it. I, uh, the idea is that I believe that the Constitution was divinely inspired, not that he wrote yeah, the Constitution. And, you know, we could we could spend an hour talking about how divine, not how divinely inspired it is, but how how whether or not the founders were religious, and most of them. Oh, I know. Weren't married, but you there's know. so much to, that you could be talked about. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, then you you. You know, you had this – you suddenly had a big new audience and so you, you thought like, whoa, there's a demand for this kind of realistic, politically uh, activist uh, work from the right and I'm going to meet that need? Is that how it went? I, I was surprised by the reaction to the painting. Uh, but we were still selling a lot of our uh, landscape and religious art and, uh, you know, I have to make a living. And, and honestly, a lot of the political paintings I do, I don't really make a lot of money at it, although I have been surprised. I mean, I, I one time did a painting of Obama burning the Constitution. Right. You know, it was one of those days where I was, I am really, I really want to make a statement. I really want to say how I feel. Yeah. And I, I didn't even have any intention of that painting uh, ending up anywhere. 
But I painted it. I posted it on Facebook. It went super viral, got picked up by Drudge Report, uh, on and on and on and on. And then I sold a ton of them. Uh, the so, reproduction, reproductions of that picture. Yeah. And yeah. I thought to myself, where do people hang this? You know, they're not going <laughs> to hang qu- it above their couch. Good they're question. not going to hang it in their bathroom. But I think uh, you know a lot of people buy art because it makes a statement about what they believe. Yeah. It's a very emotional thing. Yeah. So. Same reason I wear, wear T-shirts and stuff, I guess. There you go. <laughs> uh, over the years, I've talked to lots and lots of artists of various kinds, mostly mm-hmm. people of the left because that's what most artists that's are. What most of them are. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and, and often when, when the subject of political art comes up, I, I am skeptical. I have been skeptical. Like, that mm, – is if if you start off with with a political idea you're trying to make and that's why you do mm-hmm. art it doesn't necessarily do justice to the politics or the art do, do you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean i mean that's sort of the idea that's that's common among the art elite and the establishment is that there are certain things that you don't do as an artist you know you don't mix politics and religion for example uh, you know but art is meant to create an emotion right. and what can create an emotion more than when you mix something that is so agitative to so many people you know and you look at some of the most famous paintings in history and a lot of them were very connected to politics. These artists, you know, like uh, uh, Picasso and For Goya sure. and some of the ones, yeah, they were great. very political. Yeah, exactly. yeah, very political. And even Da Vinci and Michelangelo, they they had their personal thoughts. Right. And so I'm not straying too far away from that, except that I am an anomaly in the art yeah, world yeah. <laughs> because yes, of are. my positions and the way I paint. I'm kind of breaking all the rules and really agitating a lot of people. I mean, I hear what the art critics say. Right. Your painting of The Forgotten Man, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, uh, shows this uh, ordinary guy unhappily morose on a bench in Washington, D.C., I guess despairing. Uh, All the past presidents are standing behind him and Mm -hmm. off to the side, there's uh, then President Obama with his back turned uh, and his foot on the Constitution. Now – you said that you had no intention to make that about race. It was just about this whole small government and constitutionalism right, and all that. Right. But Not like, everybody looks at everything through the lens of race. <laughs> well, no, but there's one black guy in this picture of the 40-odd, and it's him. And and he, he's causing the problem. I mean, you see how people can say, hmm. Yeah, oh, oh, I can see how they do, but isn't it kind of – I mean, I see it as a silly argument because, hey – He's the first black president that we've had. But, you know, if you, ha- if you see the world through, uh, you know, there's racism problem and, and, and that, you know, if that's, if that's on the tip of your mind, then you will decipher this painting as something racist. Speaking of your painting, The Forgotten Man, which, by the way, was a phrase popularized by FDR during the Depression, here is Donald Trump striking that very chord in his victory speech after the November election. Every single American will have the opportunity to realize his or her fullest potential. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. So, John, when you heard that, did did you feel there was a relationship between who Trump was talking about and to and, and your painting? Well, I, I think that uh, Trump noticed something that was happening uh, during the election and that a lot of people who didn't normally come out and vote uh, were responding to his campaign. And it's interesting because uh, you know I've become good friends with Sean Hannity who, you know, per- who buys my paintings. 
and uh, I've been talking to him. Has, how many paintings has he bought? Uh, quite a few. I, I won't say exactly. Really? Like yeah. six? Uh, yeah, it's been it's what? more. But but I'll tell you this. You know, I've been talking to him about that forgotten man painting, and how important it was that I felt like it represented this time in history from our our standpoint and. And uh, he started talking about my painting on his radio show. One guy that I really like because of the themes of his work is my friend John McNaughton. His uh, signature painting is called The Forgotten Man. This is what this election was about for me. And uh, Donald Trump, in his um, acceptance speech, mentioned The Forgotten Man and Woman. It's interesting that it's all kind of tied together like that. Yeah. Do you think, though, that the the name and the painting and it's and what it was trying to express – actually affected people? Because as you say, it went viral on the internet. Well, if I had called the painting uh, The Man on the Bench, probably wouldn't have had <laughs> <Yeah>. the same <laughs> <Yeah>. effect. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it felt like the right title yeah. or the I, or, the, or the, the beleaguered white dude, I guess. you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, any it, the title really captured, you know, the feeling of what it represented. So um, I, I know that for lots of uh, – comedians, artists of various kinds of people in the media during the Obama administration is like, oh, uh, what are we supposed to do? You know, uh, our guy is president. We love him. Um, now that Donald Trump is in, are you going to like shift more to, you know, religious, strictly religious and landscape pictures and like leave politics well, out of it? I don't know. It's hard to imagine myself not doing political art. I, I, I always paint the things that I'm the most interested in. And if if Trump does something that I see is, hey, that's that's bothered that bothers me. I don't like that. I need to to say how I feel about it. Sure, I'll I'll paint something. And I can't wait to see that painting, John McNaughton, and have you back on the show to talk about it. Okay. That was the painter John McNaughton. The sound working. I can hear you. Can you hear us? From the time my parents were young, lefties have been strumming acoustic guitars, and liberal politicians still turn to old folk music standards when they're preaching to the choir. Shall we sing This Land is Your Land again until they get the sound working? This land is your land. This land is my land. That is House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi stalling for time during a protest of Trump's immigration ban. And she wasn't the only one singing Woody Guthrie recently. This land is your land. This land is my land. Lady Gaga kicked off the Super Bowl halftime show the same way. And commentators saw that as a kind of soft anti-Trump gesture. Folk music and left politics do go together like Ben and Jerry, but producer Richard Paul discovered a little-known other side of the folk revival of the 1960s. You're a public radio listener, so it's safe to say you know all about folk music. In the early 60s, folk singers took the people's songs and used them as a weapon to attack the problems of the day. When I was young, it seemed to me The whole wide world would soon be free, but communism is on the rise, and Satan has a new disguise. Folk singers energized America's youth by reaching them in their own language. 
we wanted to reach young people, college people. I thought the songs and the music was letting people know things that they probably didn't know. It was educating people through music. The communist has termites work in darkness underground. And most of all, in the 60s, folk singers spoke truth to power. The leaders of the left wing, they know their day has passed. America's awake now, and Barry's rising fast. Get along home, left wingers, get along home. I think I know what you're thinking at this point. Holy Birkenstock, what the hell was that? Right-wing folk singers? How did I get through the 60s without knowing about right-wing folk singers? Well, to be fair, you were pretty high at the time. It's such a perverse, against-the-grain kind of genre. Bill Gearhart runs a website called Conalrad that deals with pop culture from the Cold War and has a whole section that proves right-wing folk singing wasn't just the plot of a Tim Robbins movie. You have this movie that came out in 92 called Bob Roberts, you know, that Tim Robbins did. And I think a lot of people who saw that movie thought that that was a complete invention. Turns out it wasn't. Come listen, good people, so free and so brave. There's a danger coming and it plans to enslave. It has captured one billion with deception and lies. And raised an iron curtain that muffles their cries. That's Janet Green who was billed as the anti-Joan Baez. I had nothing against her personally. I thought she had a beautiful voice. I was just as good or better. I know you've never heard of Janet Green or The Spokesman or Vera Vanderlane, but they had their moment. Janet Green sang for 5,000 people once at Cobo Hall in Detroit. And one time, she sang the national anthem at a rally at Knott's Berry Farm, where the Pledge of Allegiance was read by Ronald Reagan, and the MC was John Wayne. First time I met John Wayne, it startled me because he picked me up and kissed me, and he said, I, had to, I just had to kiss you because you're so cute. <laughs> and I thought, well, I've been kissed by John Wayne. How about that? I never expected that to happen. <laughs> Folk music reached its peak in the early 60s. Hootenanny was the number two rated program on ABC in 1964, the year that Lyndon Johnson ran against Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater for president. When conservatives saw fresh-faced young wasps on uh, Hootenanny, it suddenly became more acceptable. And I I think that was uh, one of the reasons why they embraced or tried to use folk music to their ends. Especially during that presidential campaign, right-wing folk singers offered a special energy to their base. It was a fun political campaign and and drew hundreds of thousands of more people into active young conservative activity. That's Jameson Campaign, one of the founders of Young Americans for Freedom, the group that provided first the shoe leather and then the intellectual firepower for Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, Newt Gingrich, and George W. Bush. I think probably you could call us squares, but so what? We knew we were right. They knew they were, but nobody else did. In 64, you could hardly find the right wing on the American political scene. 
Nelson Rockefeller's people controlled the Republican Party, the liberals controlled the Congress and the White House. We have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. And the media. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. But while left-wing youth were tuning in, turning on, and dropping out, the Young Americans for Freedom were plotting and organizing to undo the New Deal. And when they'd kick back at the end of the day, often as not, the music they'd turn to would be folk music. Oh, what have you done, left-wing, left-wing? Oh, what have you done for our country? Well, we've raised the national debt. Yeah, it's going higher yet. That is a group called the Goldwaters. They appeared around the country at Goldwater for President rallies, singing goofy songs and doing patter like the Smothers Brothers. Their one and only album was titled The Goldwaters Sing Songs to Bug the Liberals. They were upbeat and positive and made fun of uh, Bobby Kennedy and LBJ. And if you'd not heard them a hundred times before, it was a lot of fun. Hang down your head, left wingers. Hang down your head and cry. Take one last look at the White House before you say goodbye. The Young Americans for Freedom even had their own songbook called Folk Songs for Conservatives. A lot of the songs we sang were drinking songs uh, adapted from England and Ireland and Scotland. Hang Earl Warren to a sour apple tree. His impeachment still will fill the bill for folks like you and me. We'll soon cast off the yoke of his judicial tyranny as we go charging on. Well, if you were out working in the rain and delivering campaign literature or, and, you know, working summer jobs to save up money to fly to San Francisco for the convention, I think it plays a lot of roles. A, a sense of a land, a sense of comradeship, you know, it's entertainment, lubricated by a little uh, beer, you know. <laughs> Won't you come home, Bill Buckley? Won't you come home? From the establishment Don't pal with Norman Mailer Don't suck with Reds Please give them up for land Wow, wow, wow there's a Tom Lehrer routine from around this time where he talks about folk songs of protest. You have to admire folk singers, he says. Songs. It takes a certain amount of courage to get up in a college auditorium and come out in favor of the things that everybody else in the audience is against, like peace and justice and brotherhood and so on. He's right. Singing left-wing folk songs? Come on. That was easy. But this... This was hard. Put a yellow streak down my son's back. Make sure that he never ever fights back. At his physical, have him say he's gay. Have him win. Richard Paul produced that piece. Coming up, the 50-year-old message of the Black Panthers. Bobby must be set free. Huey must get out of jail. As sung by their in-house funk band. Bobby must be set free. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. On this week's show, we are looking at what happens when art gets political. Ten 
everybody knows that in the 1960s and 70s, the counterculture generated rock music that had explicit, in-your-face political lyrics and themes. But some brand-name political music of that era never charted. And I'm very happy to be able to talk to you today. A dozen years ago, a grad student named Ricky Vincent was digging into the archives at Stanford University, researching Huey Newton, the 24-year-old co-founder in 1966 of the Black Panther. Because we must always realize that the people have the power, and without that... While he was combing through Newton's papers... Vincent found a tape. It didn't sound like much. It was in two chunks, and one of the songs was cut in half. And I couldn't tell if it was the tape that was cut or, you know, if that song could be recovered or not. But for a musicologist like Vincent, it was gold. He'd come to Stanford chasing down a rumor, and the tape was proof. I learned about the Lumpin' uh, from a conversation uh, with Boots Riley, the lead rapper of The Coup, and he told me he heard somewhere that somebody said the Black Panthers had a band. Nishat Kurwa has the remarkable story of the band called The Lumpen. Quick heads up, one member of the band uses some rough racial language. All power to the people! All power to the people! The Lumpen got its name from Karl Marx. Marx called society's most excluded people the Lumpen Proletariat. That's got to be the least funky name of a band ever. But the Lumpen weren't really about being funky. They were about revolution, ending the oppression of black people once and for all. They met while bundling Black Panther Party newspapers late at night and singing to pass the time. How to be free. It's what black folks do. Michael and Santa Rita and, and I all knew each other. So while we're working, we're singing. That's Bill Calhoun. People would sing along with us and all that, and it was something that lifted people's spirit and made the work easier. We're closing the door. In the spring of 1970, the party's Minister of Culture, Emery Douglas, asked them to sing at a community rally. It went over well. Douglas convinced the party to take a chance at fronting a Black Panther singing group, complete with dance routines and costumes. Bill Calhoun recruited the band. He had been performing for years, gigging up and down California as Billy King. He had a regular show at a club in San Francisco when the Watts riot broke out, along with smaller uprisings in the Bay Area. The reaction of the club owner when he started talking about them niggers, it hit me that, yes, I am Billy King, and yes, I am the lead vocalist in the show, and yes, I am the MC, but I'm also one of them niggers. And that kind of changed things for me. So you got to Oakland, and what was that like? There are all of these young people full of this revolutionary spirit, and... (laughs) You're a sweet girl. (laughs) so naive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, there was not a whole lot of people around with a lot of revolutionary zeal. During the entire civil rights episode, there probably was never more than 10% of the black population involved in any of it at any given time. 
Now, the Panthers in 1970 were the epitome of radical chic. But getting recruits wasn't easy. Being in the party was kind of like college. The hard part, not the sex and drugs part. In order to be a Panther, you had to, there was a 12-page reading list for non and all these things. That took all of the fanfare out of it. This is one of the Lumpen guys, Clark Bailey. We enjoyed each other and we did what young men do. You know, but in terms of our direction, we never lost our direction. There was a lot of socially conscious soul music in that era. Like, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. But the stars didn't get involved in radical politics. I, Richard Billhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. James Brown even performed at Richard Nixon's inaugural ball. Marxist funk was a whole new ball game. Instead of saying dance to the music, it was power to the people. That's band member James Mott. They had some original songs, but they would also take hits and just rewrite the lyrics. Remember, we didn't have a lot of time um, to rehearse. We had to load up, unload our equipment, set it up, get dressed. I remember Pat Hillier, David Hillier's wife, made our first outfits. We had a jumpsuit and the, and the blue shirts. They were pretty cool. All right, on the one hand, we were catching on. and People wanted to see us. Okay, we didn't have a 45-minute set of, of original tunes. Yeah, I wasn't able to write fast enough to keep up with the demand. Sometimes they'd leave a show at midnight and be serving grits to children at 6 a.m. Finally, they went into a recording studio and made their one and only record, Free Bobby. In 1969, the party's co-founder, Bobby Seale, had been sentenced to four years in prison for contempt of court. He's proven his love for his people. That's why Bobby must be set free. We're saying Bobby must be set free. No, it wasn't the fact that we put out a single and everybody went, wow, Bobby must be set free, yes. No. I served pancakes, I sold papers, I did all kinds of things in the party, but that was our little singular contribution. If you weren't going to come to a rally and listen to a speech, then I'll sing it to you. How's that? <laughs> get the message, that's the point. Bobby must be set free. Huey must get out of jail. In the winter of 1970, the Lumpen went on tour, traveling to black colleges around the country. They played for a crowd of 15,000 at the Panthers Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. The night before they left home, they played at Merritt College in Oakland. They did their take on Curtis Mayfield's People Get Ready. This was the homemade tape Ricky Vincent found in the archives. William Christmas, James McLean. They have an interlude where they acknowledged all these Panthers that were killed by law enforcement, using the song as an opportunity to kind of respect uh, the people in this struggle. To all revolutionaries that have given their lives in the cause of freedom throughout the world, we the Lumpen respectfully dedicate this song. It was more of a metaphor for the movement, the freedom train, and the lumpen flipped it around and said, people get ready, the revolution's coming. You know, you don't need a ticket, you need a loaded gun. Revolutionary artists can initiate radical change. The people that they, that they reached, the people that heard their record, they got a hint of that. But the crises that faced the party was so severe, uh, it, they didn't have a chance to really uh, bring that whole uh, movement into fruition. 
By the time the Lumpen went on tour, the Black Panther Party had already begun to splinter. Party members were on trial, the FBI was raiding. More and more of the Panthers' time went to providing security. And then it was over. I met a woman in the party uh, that I had felt very deeply about. She became pregnant. She left. I was very concerned about that. Bill Calhoun. I was on security at National Headquarters. Within 10 minutes, the place is filled with FBI agents, and they're, they're, they're prepared to raid. And I was sitting there with my um, piece of technical equipment in my hand, and I was thinking about my pregnant girlfriend. And um, suddenly, that was the first time in my life this didn't seem quite as important. I woke up one morning, and a little voice in my head said, Get up and leave now. Can you turn that off for just a second? Of course. This is awkward stuff for a former Panther to talk about. When I turned the recorder off, he told me more about how uneasy he'd become. The atmosphere of suspicion and distrust inside the party. Emory Douglas touched on it, too, vaguely. What people bring to the table when they come into the organization, whether they're in the rank and file or in a uh, position of, of influence in the party, of, you know, all those things still play into how people relate to each other. Human nature, yeah, it, and overcoming those obstacles, and yeah. Even if they didn't achieve what they'd hoped, Ricky Vincent still finds the Lumpen inspiring. He wrote a book called Party Music about the band. And he thinks it might have gone very differently if they had been able to record an album. Their work would have been treated as a as sort of an underground cult uh, act like the Last Poets were. The Last Poets are kind of like the godfathers of hip-hop. These people did not get radio airplay, but they sold pretty well, you know, as, as, and they sort of helped create a discourse. And so the Lumpen would have done that, but they would have thrown out a signal to the soul music industry that, you know, look, you're on watch here. You can play your bubblegum pop, but there's another, another level here to what the people are ready for. Because when the 60s were over, pop music put the revolution behind it. You know, I never will forget Paul McCartney. I can't believe I'm singing another silly love song. I mean, because things had just, the, the culture had shifted, and we were back to, let's get it on, you know, instead of something that was important. From Watts to Brownsville, we find misery. But there won't be no more, won't be no more, there you can hear the Lumpen's anthem, Free Bobby, at Studio360.org. Thanks to producer Nishat Kurwa for that story. Coming up, the novelist Philip Roth imagines what might have happened if a celebrity presidential candidate with problematic views and the slogan, America First, had won the election of 1940. There was an anti-Semitism that could have been tapped by some kind of demagogue or charismatic figure. Luckily, instead of getting that, we got Roosevelt. The novelist Philip Roth, on his suddenly very relevant 13-year-old novel, The Plot Against America... That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
Studio 360. This whole hour, we're talking about political art. Sometimes, in some places, just listening to music can be a political act. The graphic novelist Marjan Satrapi grew up in Iran before and after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Her memoir, Persepolis, is about her being a curious, artistic kid in Tehran. She had the kinds of problems rebellious teenagers everywhere have, but with the extra problem of theocratic guardians policing the streets. I spoke with Satrapi back in 2007, when the war in Iraq was at its peak and President Bush had declared Iran part of the axis of evil. Persepolis had just been turned into an animated film, and she explained why anybody who's ever been a teenager can relate to her experience. The reason, you know, I think that, the, you know, the, the, the movie works everywhere because people, they can identify to this story. I mean, repression, once in a while you have the repression of a government, you know, in your life. But, you know, if you're, for example, born in a Mormon family, you know, in Salt Lake City, you also have another kind of repression and you have the you can have repression of your school. So anybody, everybody, I mean... You know, according to the repression that they have lived at one moment or the other moment of the, their life, they can ad- identify to this story. Of course, you know, if the guys they are from Eastern Europe, they ad- identify much more because they have political background that is very similar to my, the political background of my country. There's a wonderful scene where you go and try to buy cassettes of rock music on the black market in Tehran, and you're caught by two women who who see your punk sneakers and and your pins. If you can sort of set up the scene and describe what's about to happen. Well, what is about to happen is that, you know, I go and ask money from my mother to go to the black market. No, 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 no. Il faut absolument que tu me donnes 50 tomans. Ah oui. Dit qu'il y a des mecs qui vendent des cassettes sur l'avenue Gandhi. Et des cassettes des Bee Gees. Mais maman, c'est nul, les Bee Gees, quoi. As I go you know, in the street, and that is this guy proposing me, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. And then the other one is proposing Julio Iglesias. Julio Iglesias. Pink Floyd. Michael Maxson. Roger Lev. Werner Angle. Carta Jouet. Iron Maiden. Hey, c'est combien pour ça? Saint Thomas. I say 50. 50. I say 60. 60. I say 50. 50. I say 60. 60. 50. Okay, 50. 50. 50. Et toi, c'est quoi cette tenue C'est quoi ces chaussures de punk Quelles chaussures de punk And as soon as I have it, that is the female branch of the Garden of the Revolution. And they say, what is that what are, what are those pants What are those shoes What is this jacket C'est des baskets Cette forme, c'est punk c'est, c'est parce que je fais du basket au club de mon école Et cette veste, c'est pour faire du basket aussi Ça, qu'est-ce que c'est Michael Jackson Ce symbole de la décadence occidentale Mais pas du tout, madame C'est... c'est... C'est Malcolm X. Tu te fous de moi. C'est Michael Jackson. Baisse ton foulard, petite pute. Allez, ça suffit. Tu viens avec nous au comité. Pardon, madame, je recommencerai plus. Madame, ma mère est morte. And then I make a big fat lie, like my mother is dead and my mother-in-law, she's very bad. And if I don't go, you know, she would burn me with an iron and she will put me in an orphanage. And so they let me go. Pitié. Pitié, j'ai pitié, madame. Do you want Westerners who see this film to sort of take away some new idea of Iran and its history? 
you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, what they show here on TV, I don't say that this reality doesn't exist. This is one reality, but that is... Of the, revo- the, the revolutionary yes, you know, secret of, police and yes, don't wear that short skirt. Yes, or, and all these people, you know, with a knife in the middle of their, you know, teeth waiting, you know, to go and attack the West. This is one reality. And you have many other reality, but we should, don't show them because then it becomes much more complicated and we don't want that. The only thing that I want, and that is something I have always said, and I really believe in it, is that if people, they watch this movie and they say to themselves, oh, I could identify to this person, so it could have been me. This is the only pretension that I have, just to think as the other one, as another human being. And if we understand that, and, you know, because why, for example, you know, why is it that, you know, America can go and make a war in Iraq? Just... Because the public opinion is with them. Why the public opinion is with them? Because people think that this is the enemy. They forget that these people that are getting bombed, they're human beings exactly like them. Because they have been so much dishumanized that we forget that these people, they have brother and sister and father and mother and hope and they like to make love and, you know, eat ice cream and go to the movie. If they understand that, then it becomes way more difficult because suddenly it's not just the enemy, it's just one person just like us. If this can be understood, you know, I have reached the biggest goal of my life and I don't have more pretension like that, they, they, than that. But I tell you, I mean, since I have made this movie, I have become this hippie going everywhere talking about love and peace. And I'm not a hippie. And that is something scary for me. You live in Paris. Do, yes. Do you hope? wish that someday you can go back to Iran? Yes, of course. If I can, if I go back to Iran, that means that the situation of the whole world is much better because, you know, for Iran to have a better situation, you know, the whole configuration of the world has to change. And where's your, your hopefulness level on that front right now? You know, I mean, looking what is happening today in the world in general, I don't have a lot of hope. If there, I have one hope, if there is, I don't believe in anything anymore. The only thing that I can still believe in is education and culture. And I think that can change something. You know, the first time I came in America, I grew up with the idea that America was the worst place in the world, okay? And I came here to find all the good reason to hate Americans. Okay, shit, I got a slap in my face because American people, they were really nice. The second time, a bigger slap, a bigger and a bigger, to the point that for the, in the, the time of last election, at the time I even didn't have my French passport, me, the Iranian, the access of evil, I was the one who was defending American in France, saying, no, American, they are not like that. And they were like, they call you access of evil. And I was like, they are not American, Jesus Christ. This is, you know, this is the American government. And why is that? Because I know America. And that is because, you know, I have come here. So the knowledge make me be less stupid, less, you know, have, I mean, to deal with my hate and to understand that the things, they are much different. It's not even slightly different. So... Just to give this example, I could get rid of my stupidity by my knowledge, and I think that everybody else can. Marjan Satrapi, thanks very much. Thank you. That was a pleasure. It's the eye of the tiger, it's the thrill of the fun, rising up the You can watch Marjan Satrapi's lovely film, Persepolis, in all the usual places that you stream movies online. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first.
Donald Trump wasn't the first politician to use the slogan, America first. If we desire strength and freedom and independence for our country, the first step must be to assure ourselves of leadership which is entirely and unequivocally American. That's Charles Lindbergh, the celebrity pilot who, in the 1930s, had a fling with politics as the spokesman for a group called the America First Committee. He was a Nazi sympathizer, and his era's America Firsters were all about keeping the U.S. out of World War II in Europe. In the novel The Plot Against America, Philip Roth imagines that Franklin Roosevelt died and Lindbergh became president in 1940 instead. The book came out a dozen years ago, back when Donald Trump's flirtations with running for president seemed completely unreal. At the time, I went to Roth's house in the Connecticut woods to talk to him, to ask him what inspired him to revisit that historical moment when a lot of Americans were isolationists inclined to let this European dictator do his thing. I was reading um, the uh, proof of Arthur Schlesinger's autobiography. The Great Historian. A great historian indeed. And in talking about uh, the 1940 election, uh, he mentioned in a sentence that there were Republicans who wanted to run uh, Lindbergh for president. Um, I forget who now, but there wasn't much to it. There was just that sentence. However, I was struck by it because I didn't know that. And so in the margin, I wrote, what if they had? And three years later, I had a book. Now, we should be clear about Charles Lindbergh beats FDR, it doesn't just mean the end of the New Deal. Indeed, it doesn't mean the end of the New Deal. What it means is that we do not enter World War II. Yes, it means we don't enter World War II um, because any isolationist who had become president, and the country was largely isolationist in 1940, any isolationist who had won would have had to do what I I think, uh, what I have Lindbergh doing in the book, which is uh, reaching an agreement with Hitler and reaching an agreement with the Japanese Uh, which really allowed them their territory, as it were, and their sphere of influence. Um, So I don't... I I tried to keep it as plausible as possible. In fact, Lindbergh does very little in my book when you think about it. It's rather the impact of his presence on on the Jews, particularly, that the book is about. He is sort of a figurehead who allows this kind of outburst, this welling up of anti-Semitism around America. Did that, as you began thinking about it, and the the novel devolves around that in Mm -hmm. significant measure, did that seem plausible to you in America of 1940s? Yes. Um, The 30s are the period in which anti-Semitism flourished in America. But not just in America, as we know. It was a worldwide phenomenon, uh, or at least a Western phenomenon. And uh, we didn't have uh, Hitler. Uh, We had uh, lots of others like uh, Henry Ford, who was a vicious uh, anti-Semite and who published a weekly newspaper whose goal was to spread anti-Semitic propaganda, etc. There was built into the society at that time um, uh, discrimination uh, against Jews that uh, was accepted. So... um, Yes, there was an anti-Semitism that could have been tapped by some kind of demagogue or charismatic charismatic figure. Um, luckily, instead of getting that, we got Roosevelt. Could you read a bit from The Plot Against America for us? Sure. Why don't I read the um, 
passage that takes place, I think the night is June 28, 1940, when Lindbergh is nominated by the Republicans. And uh, this comes as such a shock to, the, uh, to our neighbors that um, they become um, concerned and outraged. Within seconds, my brother and I were once more at the radio with the rest of the family, and nobody bothered telling us to go back to bed. Hot as it was, my decorous mother had pulled a robe over her thin nightdress. She too had been asleep and roused by the noise. And she sat now on the sofa beside my father, her fingers over her mouth as though she were trying to keep from being sick. Meanwhile, my cousin Alvin, able no longer to remain in his seat, set about pacing a room 18 by 12 with a force in his gait, befitting an avenger out searching the city to dispose of his nemesis. The anger that night was the real roaring forge, the furnace that takes you and twists you like steel. And it didn't subside, not while Lindbergh stood silently at the Philadelphia rostrum and heard himself being cheered once again as the nation's savior, nor when he gave the speech accepting his party's nomination and with it the mandate to keep America out of the European war. We all waited in terror to hear him repeat to the convention his malicious vilification of the Jews, but that he didn't made no difference to the mood that carried every last family on the block out into the street at nearly five in the morning. Entire families known to me previously only fully dressed in daytime clothing were wearing pajamas and nightdresses under their bathrobes and milling around in their slippers at dawn as if driven from their homes by an earthquake. But what shocked a child most was the anger, the anger of men whom I knew as light-hearted kibitzers or silent, dutiful breadwinners, who all day long unclogged drain pipes or serviced furnaces or sold apples by the pound, and then in the evening looked at the paper and listened to the radio and fell asleep in the living room chair. Plain people who happened to be Jews now storming about the street and cursing with no concern for propriety, abruptly thrust back into the miserable struggle from which they had believed their families extricated by the providential migration of the generation before. That's great. Were you conscious of trying to make this chilling in the manner of a thriller? Because it certainly is chilling in the manner of a thriller. Is it chilling? What's the chilling part? That this indeed could have slid off this way so so easily. Yeah, though it didn't. Um, and uh, I think I, oh, I knew throughout the book that it didn't happen. Um, so there was something very um, uh, patriotic in the endeavor, which is this did not happen here. Uh, at a moment when it might have happened here, it didn't happen here. Instead of getting fascism, we got FDR. That was a big difference. So patriotic in the sense that bully for America, we did the right thing? Bully for America, this never happened. I spoke with Philip Roth in 2004. Since Donald Trump's inauguration, a lot of people have been wondering about Roth's book and whether it sort of has happened here. The writer Judith Thurman of The New Yorker recently asked him what he thought. He said, My novel wasn't written as a warning. I wanted to imagine how we would have fared, which meant I had first to invent an ominous American government that threatened us. As for how Trump threatens us, 
I would say that like the anxious and fear-ridden families in my book, what is most terrifying is that he makes any and everything possible. On that cheerful note, that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Max Gibson, Sophie Caddo. And special thanks this week to Matt Frassica. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, why a comedy guy thought he was right to direct a horror film. They're they're the shining twins of genres. (laughs) They both depend on a certain amount of groundedness. Something's only going to be as scary as it feels like it exists in this real world. Jordan Peele's Get Out. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.